reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, which can be found on page 1065 of the Pew Bibles. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what we have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon, near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah and am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. I feel safe. Hey, uh, a couple of things before we begin. If you could have your Bibles open to John chapter 3, that would be immensely helpful to me. And uh, secondly, just to let you know, introduction is going to be slightly longer. The body of the talk is going to be slightly shorter overall. It's the same good deal. But there's some difficult things to say today, as well as some good things to hear. So let's get through the difficult things together, so we can enjoy the good things together as well. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for John's Gospel. And we want to be people who hear it clearly, that we might... See the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him and have life in his name. So help us to do all that 
this morning. Amen. Do you think the world is basically good or basically bad? If we were going to be operating that kind of binary way, good or bad, which one would you choose? Obviously, the world is not perfect. I wonder what you would do to fix it. Well, that question was put to 15 contributors of the Atlantic magazine, which is a kind of a highbrow, serious um, publication, comes out of Boston. Uh, That question was put to them back in July 2009, and this is their top 15 fixes for the world. I won't go through each of them in detail, but let's have a look at some of them. Fix number one, they said, rent your own home. So remember, we're talking the very height of the global financial crisis where people right across America were losing their homes. And one fix was to say that whenever a bank was going to take away someone's home, the current occupant had the right to remain living in there indefinitely as long as they paid fair market value rent. Number one fix. Number two, unleash the dogs of peace. That is, instead of getting the United Nations to pay um, a largely ineffective troop of 18,000 peacekeepers at a cost of more than $1 billion a year, they would deploy private military companies, which are cheaper and apparently have a proven track record in defeating insurgencies in places like Angola and Sierra Leone. Fix number three, give up on democracy in Afghanistan. Fix number four, privatise the seas, that's the private trading routes. Fix number five, tell the truth about colleges. That is, paying more for a US college degree doesn't equal automatically a better education or better job prospects. Fix number six, welcome guest workers. It's fine to give loans, textbooks, fair wage campaign materials to poor countries, but nothing will boost the income of the average poor worker nearly as much as letting them live and work in a rich country wonder what you think about that. Fix number seven, pay the artists. I didn't realise this, but art spending is fantastic at creating employment. For every $30,000 you spend on the arts, one more person gets a job. And you need to spend about a million dollars building a road or a hospital to create an extra job. So maybe we should pay the artists. Number eight, end all taxes. Ah, you like that, don't you? Except one. There's a fellow called Henry George. He was a brilliant self-taught economist. He published a paper called Progress and Poverty. He blamed all economic ills on the private ownership of land and found it perverse that we tax productive activities like work while letting landowners grow rich just because they scooped up property at the right time. Do you like that? Don't tell me. Number nine, civilise homeland security. Sounds like a great idea. Number 10, end the corporate income tax. Just spoken about that. Number 11, redesign the US dollar bill. Like we've got to make that bit of paper pretty, apparently. Number 12, end the vice presidency. You know, the very first vice president of the United States, he said that his position was the most insignificant office that ever the imagination of man had conceived. He felt pretty good about his job, didn't he? Fix number 13, teach drinking, as in drinking in moderation to young people. Fix 14, build stuff and buy stuff that will last rather than stuff that's just junk. And fix 15, train Detroit, as in retrain people. Top 15 fixes of the world. What do you think? That list. Do you like it? One of the things I noticed about that list is that it it tends to be pretty US-centric, doesn't it? And uh, I'm not having a go at any of our American friends who are here with us. Love your country. 
But these suggestions do sort of focus on the states, not just the ones like redesigning the dollar bill, ending the vice presidency, training Detroit. I mean, even the ones that relate to education and security and foreign affairs, they've got a, like a stateside kind of tinge to them, don't they? You know, the other thing I notice about them is that all the fixes relates to stuff out there. Political, economic systems, tax and immigration and education policies. It's all stuff that's kind of out there. As if to say that if we can just pull a lever out there, or maybe push a button over here, uh, those changes to systems and structures and policies, well, they'll be the things that will really fix the world. Not many of those 15, if any of them, deal with the heart of the human problem which is the problem of the human heart. And so it seems to me that it's no use talking about stuff kind of out there that needs to be done to fix the world if nothing happens at the individual heart level. Because the world is, at its root, home, a heaving home to 7 billion plus people. And certainly when the Apostle John, that's Jesus' best earthly friend, the author of this biography of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John, when he talks about the world, when he talks about God loving the world, he's talking about people. To be precise, he's talking about people who are fallen and broken and people who are arranged in rebellion against God. And so what we're going to see today is that the world and the people within the world stand condemned already. Next, we're going to see that God loves the world enough to want to save it, but not by paying artists or ending corporate income tax. Lastly, we're going to see that he saves it through the person of his son. Now, I hope you do have your Bibles open there in front of you, John chapter 3, and you might be wondering, why, why did you guys break this passage up, um, beginning with verse 16, which almost always is attached to that conversation with Nicodemus that we heard last week? Well, some commentators, and I agree with them, believe that Jesus' conversation really kind of ends uh, with Nicodemus at verse 15. And from verse 16 onwards, we get John's kind of interpretation or John's sort of observations. And I think you can see that if you compare the first verse, verse 16, with the last verse in our reading, verse 36. Let's have a look. So verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You drop down to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So you can see, first and last verses, they both talk about believing in the Son, don't they? Both verses, first and last, they both talk about eternal life. And both verses talk about God's contrasting posture towards the world, that is, the people of the world. There is, on the one hand, wrath, condemnation, and there is also love. And so we are going to need to talk about that. So here's our plan for today. Firstly, the world does stand condemned. Secondly, God loves the world and he saves it through his Son so that by believing in the Son we might have life. And so very firstly then, the world stands condemned by God. Probably not the first thing you'd want to say, is it? Probably not your lead into the conversation. Let me tell you people, um, if we want to understand why the good news about Jesus is such good news, we need to know why our situation without him is so dire. The world stands condemned by God already. Now, where do I get that from and how could that be? 
Well, you can see it there in your own Bibles. Have a look at verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Uh, A little further along. Whoever believes in him, that is the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Or, uh, have a look again in your Bibles. I'd love you to look in your Bibles. Uh, to our last verse, verse 36. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, I just have to say, that couldn't be clearer, could it? Uh, We may not like what John is saying to us, but we cannot misunderstand him. God is not primarily about condemnation. That is not his final word, and we'll discover that in a moment. But that is the situation that we naturally find ourselves in. In the first place, because we don't naturally believe in the Son. John is saying that our hearts are decidedly against turning and trusting in Jesus. We would rather ignore Jesus and his claim upon our lives. We would rather listen to anyone and everyone rather than Jesus. We would prefer to follow anyone and everyone rather than Jesus. We would rather trust in our own moral performance, hard work, community involvement, cultural pedigree, whatever it is. Like we saw last week in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we would rather trust in anything than we would rather trust in Jesus. And because we as a species, broken beings, are united in our natural rebellion against God and our indifference towards His Son, we naturally stand condemned by God. Now there's actually a second reason. And the second reason why we stand condemned already by God is not so much our spiritual rejection of Jesus, but our moral rejection of God's ways, His desires that we wholeheartedly love Him and love other people. And John refers to that in verse 19. So have a look in your Bibles. In verse 19 where he says these words, Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness because their deeds were evil. He's saying there's no good training Detroit There's no good abolishing income tax. What's the point in privatizing the seas if we don't deal with the fact that our our deeds are evil? And you you don't have to be a thief. You don't need to be a, a murderer or a swindler to know that you neither love God nor love other people wholeheartedly. All of us know that we don't do that. And so because of our spiritual failings in that we do not recognize the Son, Jesus... And because of our moral failings that our deeds are evil, we stand condemned by God, uh, that is, rightly judged by him to be guilty and rightly deserving of his just wrath. Now, um, when I was in high school, I was quite a good kid. That might surprise some of you. I'll let you in on a secret. Dave Hambry was a naughty boy. (laughs) That's right, Pip, wasn't it? I didn't get in trouble very much, but I really didn't like my headmaster. Um, And one of the reasons I didn't like him is that he made us all do hymn hymn singing. See, I can't even say it. It just brings back bad memories. He he made us all do hymn singing one morning a week in addition to going to chapel. I mean, just think, can you devise a more effective strategy to turn teenage boys off the gospel than making them sing centuries-old hymns at 8 o'clock in the morning? Like, well done, headmaster. And then we had to walk up eight flights of stairs in the fire escape to get to our first morning class. And we weren't allowed to talk while we were walking up the fire stairs. And one day they were cracking down on it at my school and I got pulled aside on the way up and I was going to get the cane. 
And so I was waiting there for a while with the headmaster, anticipating stinging hands. But for some reason, I'm not entirely sure of to this day, I got out of trouble. I don't know, maybe he decided that the punishment didn't fit the crime. Whatever it was, I escaped trouble. Now, this is what many of us think it is like with God. He's like a bad headmaster. He's unreasonable in his requests. He pulls us up for our minor mistakes. And yet somehow, in ways that we cannot quite articulate, we manage to escape his wrath. Can I say, friends, that is not at all what it is like with God. In the first place, his requests upon our lives are not unreasonable. He simply asks us to live as we were created to live, loving him and loving others wholeheartedly. It's not an unreasonable request. It's just that we find it undoable. And he does call us out on it. And we're not dragged into the headmaster's office so much as we are called before the judge of the universe whose judgments are right and true and we are found rightly guilty both because of our moral failings in that we fail to love him and others wholeheartedly and because of our spiritual failure of refusing to believe in his appointed saviour, that is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are guilty and that's what condemnation means. And the punishment is that instead of eternal life we perish or we experience eternal separation from the goodness of God and instead experience his righteous anger. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've seen a glimpse of God's righteous anger when we saw Jesus cleanse the temple. That's a glimpse of what it means for the wrath of God to remain on us. And it's not funny. It's not a joke. And it's not trivial because we're talking about eternal life and spiritual death. And John is he's just crystal clear about it. And so I cannot muddy that clarity because I'm afraid that you won't like the news. The condemnation and wrath of God is not funny. It's not a joke. It's not trivial. But it's not God's final word on the matter either. Because secondly for today, God loves the world And he is committed to saving it. He loves it, by which I mean us. He loves us. And he wants salvation for us. Scotty said that John chapter 3 verse 16 is uh, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. It is. It's so famous, there was this guy called Roland Stewart. He was sometimes also known as the Rainbow Man because he used to wear a rainbow-colored Afro wig. And uh, Roland Stewart would make a, a big spectacle of himself at sporting events right across the United States. And through years of practice and uh, thousands of dollars, he worked out where to strategically position himself in the grandstands to steal the limelight from the televised proceedings. The TV networks hated him because he would hold up a big sign during crucial moments of the sporting fixture that would be broadcast right across America or even across the world. Millions of people would see his sign. The ABC sports producer called Chet Forte said this. He would station himself behind home plate at the baseball. Our camera would view over the pitcher's shoulder. Very annoying seeing this guy waving his big sign. And of course, you know that his sign read exactly what was on his T-shirt in big, bold, black type, John 3.16. Roland Stewart claimed that at the 1984 Winter Olympics at Sarajevo, they thought he was a spy. And John 3.16 was some kind of a coded message. 
Of course, John 3.16 isn't a coded message, is it? It's an open message that testifies to God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God's ultimate purpose for us is not condemnation, though that remains a very real threat for all who have not turned to his son. But his ultimate posture towards us is one of love, for God so loved the world. Contrary to what we often think, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes pleasure when people turn from their evil and turn to him and live. And we've seen glimpses of that already, haven't we? Like last week in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus said you must be born again into new spiritual life. God so loved the world, he loved the people within it, broken creatures, but united in our rebellion against him that he sent his own son into the world, as it says there in verse 17, to save the world through him. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, that God's plan to save the world centers on the sending of his son. God saves the world through his son. In verse 16, it describes salvation by using the words, shall not perish or die eternally. In verse 8, salvation is described as not condemned. In verse 36, it's described as having eternal life rather than God's wrath remaining upon us. We stand condemned naturally, but God so loves us. He's so committed to our salvation. He's so committed to sparing us from his own righteous wrath that we might see eternal life, that he would send his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, well, who is this son? Tell me more about him. Well, from John chapter 3, this son is the preeminent one sent from heaven. He is the one to whom John the Baptist, this towering presence across the Jordan, gives way when Jesus arrives on the scene. I married a lovely couple from Night Church uh, two Fridays ago, and at the rehearsal I met the groomsman. And he was this giant, beefy guy with a big bushy beard and a nose ring, looked like Ned Kelly on steroids. I literally introduced myself to him in this way. Hi, my name is Scott. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> and then I said, you know that bit in the, in the wedding ceremony where, where the minister says, if anyone has any reason why these two shall not wed? I said, if someone puts their hand up in that, I'm taking you with me to sort it out, and I'm confident we'll get through it very, very quickly. I looked at this dude, and I thought, man, you are exactly what John the Baptist would look like. Towering figure, slightly on the wild side. But here's the truth, despite his kind of imposing presence, the day of the wedding, he's not the centre of attention at all. No one was looking at him. They were all looking at the groom, <laughs> nervously waiting. And then, of course, when the bride came, they were all looking at the bride. In the same way, John the Baptist, this towering figure, this last in the long line of Old Testament prophets who had gathered quite a following, sees Jesus and immediately says to his disciples, Boys, it's not about me. It's about him. I'm just the friend. I'm just the groomsman. He is the bridegroom. Have a look at verse 29. Because John the Baptist says, I attend to him. I, I wait for him. I listen out for him. When I hear his voice, I'm overjoyed. Well, people, the groom is here. It's Jesus. Go to him. He must become greater. 
And let me say something, friends. We all must become less. He is the one to whom John the Baptist gives way. Verse 31, he is the one who is above all because he comes from heaven. He comes from God himself. Verse 34, he speaks the words of God himself. He has the spirit of God without limit. He has the full authority and resources of God himself. And he is at the very epicenter of the plans of God, the very center of God's plan of salvation, which will culminate in his sacrificial death so that our spiritual and our moral failings can be dealt with which will culminate in his triumphant resurrection so that we might not taste spiritual death, but will see eternal life. People of the world in our natural fallen and rebellious state stand condemned and remain under the wrath of God, but condemnation is not his ultimate posture towards us. Love is, and in his love for the world, the people that he made, those who neither recognize his son nor treat others properly, He has determined to save us, which he does through this figure, his majestic son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his perfectly obedient life, in his sacrificial death, and in his triumphant resurrection. The Atlantic Magazine, serious publication. It's got 15 fixes for our world, none of which deal with the heart of the human problem. And God says in John chapter 3, if I am going to fix this world, then I need to save the people who I made and who I love. And I'm going to do that through my son, Jesus. And so the final question today is, how ought we to respond to the son? If in our natural state we don't recognize him, how should we respond to Jesus? Well, of course, the answer is to believe in him. That's what we saw in the first and the last verses. And I'm going to give that opportunity to anybody who would like to do that for the first time or the first time in a long time in just a moment. And uh, if that might be you, you've got a few moments to think about whether you'd like to do that this morning. What do you reckon this passage says to those of us who have been Christians for years or Christians for decades perhaps? Well, I think it says at least two things. Uh, The first of which is actually the way that you start the Christian life, by believing in the Son, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His triumphant resurrection. The way you start is the way you continue in the Christian life. You're not saved by faith in Christ and then continue by faith in your own strength or your own hard work or moral performance or Christian service. But my experience of us church people is that is precisely what we do trust in. We trust in ourselves and kind of how we're cracking at this Christian life thing. Remember what John the Baptist said? He must become greater, we must become less. Okay, how can we trust in ourselves if we're meant to become less? It's interesting, I think, how you respond to your own sin is revealing. Do you feel like you've got to somehow make amends with a period of godly living before you can approach God again? like you've got to do that or do you just come back to christ in repentance and faith because you know it's actually it's not it's not your work for him that counts it's his work for us that's of consequence i mean i wonder what failures i wonder what guilt you can just jettison when you know that it's belief in the son 
that grants eternal life. I wonder what little idols you might have. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your standing that you can actually just hold kind of lightly to because you know that in this most important matter, all you bring to the table is belief in the abilities of another, in the abilities of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that when you do liberate yourself from that kind of failure or guilt or whether it's a reduced reputation or lost standing, I think it actually gives you a new freedom to do what verse 21 says, to live in the light. That is, doing good because there's a new moral power at work within you. In other words, God is doing something within you to live for Him rather than living for yourself as you previously did. You start the Christian life by believing in the Son. You actually continue the Christian life by believing in the Son what he has done for you and what he continues to do within us. But let me say, you do start it with belief. And if you're somebody who would like to start a new life as a Christian person, you you, you like to turn from yourself and your past way of life to trusting in Christ, well, of course I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And one way, it's only one way you can express that turning and trusting is to put it into the words of a prayer in which you say to God, sorry, thank you, please. It's just one way, but sorry, thank you, please. You know, you say to God, sorry, I actually have lived life on my own terms. I've followed my own ways. Uh, I'm sorry for not recognizing your son. The thank you is, thank you that he, not me, that he lived a perfectly obedient life, died a sacrificial death, on behalf, on my behalf to deal with my sins, rose triumphantly to guarantee me eternal life. That's the thank you. And then please, please help me to follow him wholeheartedly all the days of my life. Amen. I mean, it's just one simple way of expressing that turning and trusting in Jesus. But listen, if you would like to do that, you would like to start a new life with him today, if you would like to turn from your old way of life without him, if you would like to set out on a lifelong journey of following him, then I want to at least give you that opportunity. So um, this is what I'm going to do. It's my suggestion, right? I'm going to suggest that we all bow our heads. Uh, We all close our eyes. We all settle our hearts. Um, If you don't want to close your eyes, you can keep them open and you can look at the words of the prayer that I'm going to say. It's going to be these words here. And I'm going to pray them really slowly and deliberately. And you can just kind of echo them in your heart. And then we're all going to say amen together out loud. And before we finish, I'll tell you about some of the next steps. So let's bow our heads and let's settle our hearts. And let's get ready to pray. Let me begin. Sorry, God, that I have lived life on my own terms. Following my own ways and not recognizing your son. Thank you that he lived a perfectly obedient life, that he died a sacrificial death on my behalf to deal with my sin, and rose triumphantly to guarantee me eternal life. Please, please help me to follow him wholeheartedly all the days of my life.
Amen. Amen. Um, folks, if you pray that for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, let me um, welcome you into relationship with God and uh, into membership of His kingdom and into the community of His, his believers here at St. Matthew's. Lovely to have you. It'd be good to do a few things uh, in, in terms of next steps. I think an excellent thing to do, probably an essential thing to do, would be to tell someone. Uh, you might like to just jot it down on one of those Connect cards that Scotty was telling you about earlier that's in your bulletin. You can fold it up and stick it in one of the collection bags when they come around in our last song. That way no one would even have to know. Or you could uh, tell me or you could tell Scott or there'll be some people down here in the prayer chapel you could let them know. But maybe you want to just let the Christian friend you're sitting next to know. You might want to do that. It'd be good to tell someone. Uh, it would be a great thing to do to start reading your Bible. And I would recommend just reading John's Gospel um, from this point, chapter 3 onwards. Uh, and of course, it's always a good idea to keep coming along to church. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand over to Scott, who's going to continue to lead us in prayer.